Local political reaction to President Trump's latest Supreme Court pick on Inside Story right now. Good morning, everyone. I'm Matt O'Donnell. It is Sunday, July 15th, 2018. Let's see who's on Inside Story this morning with us. Our panelists, Donna Gentile O'Donnell. Good morning, Good Donna. Morning. Brian Tierney, marketing executive. Hello, Brian. Good morning, Matt. David Dix, governmental relations executive. Hello, David. And Jan Ting, law professor. Hey, Matt. Good morning, Jan. All right, let's get into it. President Trump's high pick is in, or high court pick is in. His name is Brett Kavanaugh. He sits on the federal appeals court. Conservatives are happy. Pennsylvania GOP Senator Pat Toomey, our area's only Republican senator, said he is pleased with the nomination, not a surprise, didn't outright endorse him yet. I want to talk about some of the reactions from the local Democrats. Let's start with Bob Casey, Pennsylvania. He's in a re-election battle. Uh, opposed to the nomination, even before it was announced, and his explanation was the whole list that President Trump picked from was approved by the Conservative Heritage Foundation. So, David... Is it wrong for Bob Casey to basically say I'm opposing him before he even knows who it is? And is it wrong for President Trump to pick from a short list like that? Well, I mean, that's traditionally what presidents do. They have a short list that they work off of. They kind of vet those names to see uh, who has the best edge, and then they nominate somebody from that list. And it's also not wrong for a senator to make a position on someone that they've had to vote on before. I mean, he was an appellate court judge before he was nominated to the Supreme Court. So they have a long history. The thing also about Brett Kavanaugh is he is a true Beltway insider. He's been in Washington, D.C. his entire life, very, very close friends with the uh, with Karl Rove, the former political brain of the Bush administration. So I'm kind of surprised that, that President Trump decided to pick someone who was so entrenched in the in the Washington infrastructure. Anyone on Casey here? I think on Bob Casey, it was a self-inflicted wound. Yeah. He didn't need to come out early mm -hmm. and say, I'm going to oppose anyone from, uh, from the Trump uh, list. Um, and I think it, it highlights uh, the issue of abortion. Uh, Casey has tried to position himself as kind of both pro-life and pro-choice, trying to draw voters so. from both camps. Oh, yeah. And I think it's I think he's uh, he's called attention to that issue. And I think uh, pro-life voters will have to question. I, I think it gives life to Barletta's challenge, Lou Barletta's challenge. Whereas I think. Casey otherwise had all the benefits of incumbency. Um, he just had to not make a mistake. Mm, okay. And I think this is a mistake. There are two points, I think, that are worth making. First, uh, on the subject of the nominee himself, um, Cory Booker made a statement about why Donald Trump chose this, this nominee, and it had to do with self-protectionism because he had made some... Uh, commentary or made, wrote part of an opinion. Yeah, two, associated 2009 with, law right. review suggested yes. that presidents cannot be indicted. Yes, so I think I think I think that's that's significant. However, the Democrats in the Senate are still smarting over what happened to Merrick Garland, and I think that there is so much poison left over from that that it 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 seeped into the thinking of a number of Democratic senators. Kavanaugh is interesting from a variety of different. First of all, he's Catholic. And so my pro-life friends were first pleased and then amount, an amount of despair because he's a Jesuit, right? And so, you know, among Catholics, uh, Jesuits are regarded as sort of the, the intellectual side of the Catholic equation. So that doesn't please them a whole heck of a lot. I, right? I, I think this was, first of all, let me just say, Jim Gardner reported that these ties can cut up to 7% of our blood flow to our brains. I took his off, but I'm leaving mine on for the good of the team, but anyway, at least for this week. But anyway, um, um, I think it was 
I think it's a clever pick, to be honest with you, because he is, you know, he's talked about his strong mother. He's an insider. He's not a really far-right type person. He's a clever kind of insider pick, and it's one. And I think Bob Casey, who rarely makes big mistakes, this was silly to kind of step out before he even heard the name and say, I'm opposed to it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's throw in a couple other names. I'll get to you on this one, David. So we have Delaware Senator Chris Coons. Uh, concern, and he, he's mostly concerned about the future of the Affordable Care Act. Democratic Senator Robert Menendez in New Jersey, who is in a re-election battle, condemned the nomination over fears of Roe v. Wade. At the same time, Menendez's opponent, Republican Bob Hugan, is undecided. Right. Interesting. Think, yeah, right? what you're going to have is a real split in the Senate. I mean, with, with the Senate being so close, it may come into uh, Vice President Pence kind of breaking a tie on this. There are two Republican senators that many people have been advocating to kind of stand against this nomination. But either way, it's going to be a very, very close vote, and it may require the Vice President to kind of get over the edge. Anyone who wants to bet against Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed, I'm, I'm, I'm taking those yeah, bets. I'm taking those yeah, bets. It's like, yeah, clever I, it's like no, no better. It's a smart well, pick. And also, there was an important op-ed written in the, in the Washington Post uh, by uh, Ruth. What was her last name? We were talking about um, this. And, well, anyway, what'd she say? Yeah. She, what she talked about was that any Democrat in a red state that votes against this nomination is on a suicide mission. Yeah. And well, I that would, would be Casey, but it's a question of whether Pennsylvania is yeah, it's it's yeah. Right. And, and Pennsylvania is more purple than red. So, sure. so there's well, he's, that. And he's but in good shape. One more thing about the Supreme Court nomination it already has spawned a renewed fight over uh, abortion, Roe v. Wade. GOP lawmakers in Pennsylvania, which is a state that has some of the most uh, restrictive laws for abortion, could be emboldened to pass laws in advance even of the nomination going through the Senate. Do you see that happening? Ironically, this could this could help Governor Wolf because exactly. he has a clear position on abortion, whether you agree with it or not. Um, and I guess there was a 2014 Pew poll that said Pennsylvania voters actually skew pro-choice more than pro-life. I don't know whether that's accurate or not. But uh, but I think um, you know he, he defines himself. He's viewed by the pro-choice people as the last bastion of defense against this um, strong pro-life movement in the state. And I think the clarity of his position, in contrast to Bob Casey, I think could help Wolf. I think the net um, on this pick, though, is it helps Republicans and doesn't help Democrats as much as they were hoping for having a really an extreme pick. Yeah. And it's, this guy's not that. And the timing couldn't be more perfect for Republicans right. with the midterms yeah. coming up. Right. Okay, let's move on. House GOP Campaign Committee has dropped its support for South Jersey congressional candidate Seth Grossman. He is running for the seat being vacated by Republican Frank Lobiondo. Grossman shared a racist article from a white nationalist on social media. He has posted and said other things that are disparaging of African Americans. This could open the door for State Senator Jeff Andrew, the Democratic candidate, to flip the district, which may be why Atlantic County GOP Chairman Keith Davis refuses to withdraw his support for Grossman, saying he just made a serious error. Let me me ask you this, Brian. Is it wrong to accidentally retweet something by a white nationalist, which is his explanation. Well, yes, it is. And it's also wrong to do it repeatedly and to be kind of mired in a lot of different things like this. This was a divided primary. There were better candidates there. He won. He's only raised $22,000. The fact that the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Committee, when it's a Republican seat is pulling back, knows that they can't be associated with it. The funny thing is Van Drew, the Democrat, is kind of an empty suit. I mean, he shows up at everything and cuts a ribbon. He will go in there and he will ask Nancy Pelosi what color tie I should wear. Uh, Where should I stand, Nancy? I mean, that's what he'll be, and it's a shame, but that's what happens when you have a bad candidate, and that's what the Republicans, unfortunately, have right now. Well, equally... 
sad is the fact that the Republicans do have a bad candidate, and we're seeing the rise of white nationalism in the Republican Party in a lot of races across the country. This guy is but one example. You're so also seeing the rise of extreme. I mean, to <coughs> say you're seeing the rise of white nationalism, I think, is unfair because the NRCC and everybody's walking away from this guy. And he's Look, I applaud them for doing that. And the fact, I, I can say the rise of, of socialism among the Democrats and the. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's. But it's not a it's a false equivalency to say the rise of white nationalism is akin to the rise of socialism. These democratic socialist candidates, particularly out west, who have won. Yeah, but there's a lot of angry, are, angry people who are who are who are racist in other ways and, right. and who are divisive in other ways. I just say when well, we can't, talk, we can't, but to talk about the rise of it sounds it sounds like it's well, it must be 25, 30 percent. No, it's not. The other it's a amazing bunch of the other amazing aspect of this story is how many public people people that we know have destroyed themselves with social media posts. Yeah. I mean, think Roseanne Barr, among the most yeah. prominent of them. People who, who, who were public figures yeah. having some degree of success, and then they just blow themselves up on social media. It's without, crazy. Well, it's without, but it must be I in their heart, too, to yeah. be honest with you. It you is, a, say, it is right? in their heart, and I think importantly, right. Um, right now we have a president that will not denounce these behaviors. Right. So when, the, when you've got the very top of the Republican Party out of sync, with decency and civility, this is the end product. A of guy that. who was People a Democrat like, for a long time, the top of the Republican Party, the National Republican Congressional Committee, they have abandoned this guy. Right. So to say that somehow but, Donald Trump, who was a Democrat, <coughs> and he's it's whatever flag is kind of comes up is one he'll win. But this tenor of racism and the idea that it's okay, especially on social media, to spread racist ideas is something that is on the rise. And I think the Republican Party was right to kind of squelch it early, yes, even agreed. in spite of the fact that they may lose a congressional seat. And now absolutely. everyone knows. Who Seth Grossman is. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Oh, right. yeah. Let's move on to He's the... He's an attorney, too. He's got a legal practice. I don't know how this helps. <laughs> good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Let's you know? go back to the governor's race. We touched on it in Pennsylvania. GOP candidate Scott Wagner is quoted as saying, I want this job so bad I can taste it. And he also released a new ad calling himself the straight talk trash hauling businessman for governor. Meanwhile, in the other corner, Governor Tom Wolf seems to be ensuring that he straddles the center ahead of the election. A post-state budget interview had him say this. The tax when I got here, the personal income tax, was 3.07%. It's still 3.07%. The sales tax was 6. It's still 6. But in, in terms of everything with election so far or the, the general going on, do you feel that it's almost moving center-right? I think here. I think Wolf has positioned himself well. The reality is taxes haven't fluctuated. No thanks to the governor who tried who tried to raise taxes. It was really the Republicans who held the line uh, on that. But uh, the governor is well positioned. You know. Uh, uh, chief executives benefit from a, a growing economy, just as President Trump benefits from the growing economy nationally. I think Governor Wolf benefits from a growing economy uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That plus, he's not listed. He had some angry voices around him at senior staff levels for the first two years. They're gone. That's right. He is now realizing uh, he's gone from angry Tom Wolf. He's back to in the in, in the in the uh, you know in the in the truck or the jeep. The jeep. Or jeep. Yeah. <laughs> he's almost sounding like Mr. Rogers with the with the uh, with the documentary coming out. I'm almost yeah. feeling like it's part of it. And the economy's going well, and he's realizing there's no upside. I'm in pretty good shape. Let me just be he's smiling. He's playing it safe. Oh, he yeah. is. But smart. I mean, Governor Wolf is not someone who's shied away from being a progressive. He's been labeled the most you know, progressive governor in the country. Um, I think. Absent Governor Wolf, the Democratic Party does have a problem with how they're going to tack. They always have this question of whether or not they tack to the left or to the right when they really need to be thinking about how they move forward. And the Republicans have outdone them, outpaced them in that regard. Yeah, they continually true. move forward, they continue to press, and the Democrats are always caught up or are we moving too far to the left or to the right instead of saying, how do we move forward?
Anyone else? Uh, just touching real quick on the uh, Supreme Court battle. Help Scott Wagner in a way? Unclear. I think very unclear. I mean, I, I don't know I, the the latest polling data in terms of where he and the Supreme Court. I don't know that anybody's polled the Supreme mm -hmm. Court nominee. Um, It'll affect so turnout, uh, but the question is whose voters are going to turn out? Uh, who's going to be motivated by this fight? And, and it sort of depends how the fight goes, um, what kind of, uh, you know, dirty issues are, are, are I think, raised. I think, Scott, I think Scott Wagner in many ways is his own worst enemy because he, he's a provocateur. He likes to be uh, in your face. Um, if, the, if, if the folks in Pennsylvania have had their fill of in your face, yeah. which I suspect will be the case by the time we get to that election, I think it works against him. One thing, in your face works in a state senate district in a certain part of the state. It's hard when you've he's got raised like 1.6 million compared to 15 million for Wolf, so that makes it harder. The other thing is on Brett Kavanaugh, the only concern I think Republicans should have is because he was on the White House staff, there's going to be a lot of memos and emails he's written mm -hmm. over the years. Mm. And it'll be interesting to it'll see if something out. pops out of that. All right, the art of having a choice. Delaware Online published a story noting that, and I found this kind of amazing, uh, more than a dozen incumbent state representatives in the state of Delaware are virtually assured re-election because no one is bothering to even run against them in the yeah. state's September primary. About 10 Democrats, five Republicans, no challengers, and even though Delaware has a Democratic governor, Democratic lieutenant governor, and the House is pretty much Democratic. The Senate is almost split, if not split right down the middle. So why are, well, why I'm, is there no competitiveness, Mr. I'm Delaware a, here? I'm kind of an expert on primaries in, in Delaware. <laughs> and uh, there are a couple of odd things about Delaware primaries. First of all, uh, they're very late. So the primary occurs in September, which means if you get into it, you've got a long primary campaign and a short general election, especially if you're a challenger. Um, that makes it politically a big hill to climb. Second, Secondly, there's no petitioning process. It's not like you go out and get signatures to get on the ballot. You pay money. You pay a percentage yeah. of your of your salary, prospective salary, to get on the ballot. So and it's so the system. There's yeah. an upfront investment there, plus it's an uphill political climb. It's really a an incumbent's protection system is, yeah. is it, it what is they a state have. with a certain amount of civility. Too. <coughs> after the election, the only state in the country, after the election, a couple of weeks later, they have the bury the hatchet day, where right. everybody right. who's run right. on both sides of it goes to Dover, right? I did that in okay. 2000. And they all shake hands. Yeah. I mean, how many yeah. state? No yeah. state does that, no. other than Delaware. So. I think that's right. And it's a part-time legislator. We kind of get it confused with Pennsylvania that has such a robust legislator. Sure. It's a much smaller and much more part-time legislator. I will highlight one race that, uh, that looks to be exciting in Delaware. It's a state senate race of uh, Robert Marshall. He's a 40-year incumbent and has a, a really a strong perspective challenger in, in Jordan Hines and I look forward to seeing that race you know of all the races that don't have a competition this one it looks to be really competitive in Delaware part-time legislature people don't realize the Pennsylvania legislature that's <laughs> supposed to be part-time part too yeah. inside story be right back here we are back with inside story next topic here Philadelphia's new school board held its first public meeting the key word coming out of it was patience Mayor Kenny, who had the idea of abolishing the School Reform Commission in the first place, appointed all nine members with advice from City Council, six men, three women, two members previously served on the SRC, which one parent, at least, objected to. Now, parents are asking for more resources and transparency. Superintendent Bill Height responded by saying, trying to manage expectations is important. People have to be patient. Good start. My advice to people as it relates to the school board is let Bill Height do his job. The guy is really good. Be supportive. Don't politicize it. Don't distract the team from what they're trying to do because they're making progress. 
I also think that you know the, the whole idea of patience is relevant in a couple of ways. It's hard to get outcomes in complex situations, and we're in incredibly complex situations between Harrisburg and Philadelphia, and then you throw in Washington. I mean, it, I don't know that I've seen a more complex set of circumstances politically for any government entity, particularly one that's got such a big responsibility. And the second thing is the layers. I mean, if you try to figure out what's going on at the Philadelphia School District and within that system, it's like an archaeological dig. You have to keep digging to understand where did all these things come from. So uh, the learning curve, I think, for the school, the new school board in understanding what it is that they're grappling with and then sorting out what their agenda is going forward. It's, it's, so, so patience is going to be a really the important The most amazing change. thing to me is that, um, yeah, they're <coughs> managing a $3.2 billion underfunded budget mm -hmm. for 200,000 students. And they're doing this as volunteers. They're all unpaid. Uh, so all this digging that they're going to have to do, unpaid, <laughs> right? You're volunteers. Uh, and so that that's, to me, like, amazing. Yeah, I don't think this was ever a real <coughs> governance issue, right? So we go from the SRC to now an appointed school board. I mean, Dr. Height has been doing his job, but I can't imagine how hard it is with all this instability right. to continue to do your job. It's not a governance issue. It's a funding issue. It's something that all politicians have been talking about. Now it's time for them to work on how to get the resources to the school district. And it's two thousand students total although a third of them are in charter schools so That's they right. only have 130 yes but they're they don't have to manage it and it's part of the archaeological dig is work rules and all these union type mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. that really aren't or who got the contract or Bob the band you know that has nothing to do with educating the children right. so I wouldn't spend too much time on the archaeological dig because you're gonna be here five years from now and finding <laughs> I am hit Hit another There's cask a lot of kids of out there on yeah. summer vacation, yeah. though, so they could start doing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Tie it in with the Penn Museum. And you well, no, I understand. <laughs> I have a, a very close friend who's a principal. This is the first year that they went into full years, especially for principals. Mm -hmm. So he had maybe 10 days off and is back in the classrooms yes. wow. uh, starting this Monday. All right. Well, enjoy your vacation, and we'll see you back in September, and it'll continue to be an issue. Staying with schools but uh, higher learning here, tuition costs at Pennsylvania State Universities are going up impacting students at Westchester, Kutztown, Cheney, some of the local schools here. Those who run the system, and this is even before they passed the hike back on Thursday, admitted that they might be pricing out the very students that these schools are designed to serve, particularly the middle class. So big, big picture here. When's the education bubble going to burst? They keep talking about this, and it just won't happen. I think it's bursting now. There's there's a demographic crisis out there in uh, college and university land, and that is the number of eligible applicants for undergraduate education is actually projected to go down, and we're seeing the leading edge of that now. So it's a dilemma for every institution to say, how do you get a bigger share of a shrinking pie just to stay in place, just to maintain your position? And it's hard to balance your budget in, in the face of those demographics. So think of what he's but saying is fewer students graduating from high school just as many, so part of it might be consolidation. Right? Might be. Might be that, you know, so that's one way to find that. savings. Well, right. and I think one of the ways that you can reasonably consolidate at the state university level is to examine each program in each college and, you know, build, build a diagram of where everything is. One of the, one of the criticisms that, uh, that the state university system has faced in the past, and it's a legitimate one, is that as the student selects a major and progresses along to the point where they're now taking the more advanced courses, those more advanced courses are limited in, in availability. Sometimes they're every other semester. So, so that's actually contributed mightily to a number of students that never complete. So now you've got students that have made an investment 
investment, their families have taken out loans, yeah. and they get to a point of non-completion. It's incumbent upon the state university system to treat seriously the fact that they're bringing in students, however many they might be, and they need to figure out how they can consolidate those programs so that students who do make the commitment and do pursue a line of, of educational inquiry are, have a reasonable chance of completing. What do you think, David? As a state system graduate, I went to Indiana University of Pennsylvania. The I, Indiana the University of Pennsylvania. IUP. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, just, I, I think we're on the wrong tilt, right? So we don't have the commitment that we used to to ensure that everybody had fair access to education. I don't know where I or many of my colleagues that went to IUP would have been had we not had that opportunity for access. And I left relatively debt-free, which is a very, very rare thing yes, ever now more. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'd like to see both governors, candidates, the state general assembly, everybody say, we're going to do what we can to make this a real right for our citizens, you know, and I think it, it will have long-lasting benefits for and our economy. Saying consolidation, you got to pick something to close, and it's sort of like the Joint Base Commission. No one's going to want the right. school in their neighborhood right. to close, right. right? Yeah, but there's ways to do it. I mean, you have to say, look, we have to find the savings, okay? So we just don't have as many, you don't, I mean, you don't have any, as many bank branches now. You do, you, sure. UK, you got to figure that out. But so you point, say, one point I want to make is programs how of excellence. important these universities are to the economy of their region. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you've never been yeah, to California, true. Pennsylvania, sure. but yeah. you know, right. the economy Absolutely. of California, Pennsylvania so is pretty sensitive. Inside, yeah. Inside Stories of the Week coming up. Inside Stories of the Week, we start with Donna. It was an important bipartisan moment, yay, in Harrisburg, in which State Representative Bill Keller moved a piece of legislation all the way through with the help of Republican leaders, Democratic leaders, and importantly, Darrell Metcalf, who has been uh, a really challenging guy for a lot of folks to deal with. But he, he delivered an important way for Philadelphia. Philadelphia will benefit from this development opportunity, and it may even help us with, with Amazon. So go Keller, go Republicans, go Democrats. Thanks, Donna, Brian. <laughs> Uh, as you know, I was very involved. My agency was with the Pope coming to Philadelphia. We're doing the same thing. He's going to Ireland in next month. And the Irish were like, well, what could we do that would be positive? I got something positive. Let's celebrate peace in Ireland for 20 years. We've got uh, George Mitchell, Senator Mitchell. We have people from Colombia talking about something positive in the world, and that's peace and happiness. Perfect. David. 20, I'm sorry, 12 years. 12 years ago, when Senator Casey was first running for office, he brought an upstart senator uh, who had presidential amb ambitions in Barack Obama. Now, this past Friday, he brought in another new senator with presidential amb ambitions in Kamala Harris. They had a big rally at 3801 on Market Street, and I hope, and well, I'm, I'm pretty certain that that will help kind of engender support, particularly among the African-American community. Thanks, David. Jane? Uh, the, the Supreme Court confirmation process reminds us what it was like before 1987 and the uh, Bork nomination when the criteria for a Supreme Court justice were basically three. Uh, was the candidate experienced? Uh, did the candidate have a judicial temperament? And uh, did the candidate have integrity? If you had of all three, congratulations, you're on the Supreme Court. That's obviously changed. We live in different times, right. and it provides us with a lot of material here on Inside, Inside Story. Oh, yes. Thanks for joining us here, our panelists, and for you for watching. Have a great Sunday, everyone. I'm Matt O'Donnell. That's Inside Story. I'll see you Monday morning on Action News at 4.30 a.m. Make it an appointment.